We are continuing on in Romans 8 this morning, and I'm going to be reading a portion of what John read last week and continuing on with that, and then a portion of uh, that which he left off last week, and uh, we're going to do the same passage this week and next, and I hope that you will see how these passages, these two pieces fit together. Today we're going to be talking about life. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about our obligation based on the life that God has given us. So before we read uh, God's holy word, let us uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand and apply it. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit who breathed out this, your word, would breathe on us afresh this day. That we would be able to understand your word to us. Lord, that it would find fertile soil in our hearts. That it would grow and produce fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray that your spirit also would speak peace to your people through Christ, through your word. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I have to admit that one of my favorite aspects of the Christian faith to discuss is the Holy Spirit. I have had the opportunity to lead several studies on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in my time in ministry. And I've discovered that it is more the rule than the exception That when Christians, at least Western Christians, begin to think about the Holy Spirit, one prominent aspect they think of is spiritual gifts, especially what might be considered to be some of the more spectacular gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing. In fact, when we think of the Holy Spirit, our thoughts might be limited to the spiritual gifts. We might have resigned ourselves to the fact that we can only comprehend, at least to some degree, 
who God is as Father and who God is as Son, but the Holy Spirit is mysterious. The Spirit blows wherever the Spirit wills, right? Francis Chan could then be on to something when he refers to the Holy Spirit as the forgotten God. But if we fail to be attentive to what is revealed about the Spirit in Scripture, we have failed to realize that there is actually quite a bit to be known. And we have a very diminished view of the triune God, but we also have, by extension, a very diminished understanding of the Christian life. Unfortunately, it seems that the influence of the charismatic movement in the Western church has caused the person and work of the Holy Spirit to be pigeonholed. This is not only unfortunate in terms of spiritual gifts, since all the gifts of the Spirit are to be used for the building up of the church. And with this in mind, it could be that a gift like teaching should be more desired and held as far more valuable in the everyday life of the church than the gift of speaking in tongues. But it is also unfortunate because the work of the Holy Spirit is far deeper and more fundamental for our salvation than the giving of spiritual gifts. So two weeks ago, as we began the great eighth chapter of Romans, Pastor John stated that we might be wondering what the Holy Spirit has to do with Presbyterians. And his response is worth repeating. Do you remember what he said? What does the Holy Spirit have to do with Presbyterians? Everything. Everything. But not just Presbyterians. It's all believers. Paul takes us here in the 8th chapter of Romans to some great heights of how the Holy Spirit is involved in the lives of believers. And we might find that perhaps we should be a little more attentive to the Holy Spirit. As we see, as we begin in verse 9 this morning, that Paul is laying out here that the hallmark of the authentic believer is the possession or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says it rather bluntly, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He doesn't say that only some Christians have the blessing of the Spirit. Well, that group has the Spirit, but this group over here, not so much. No, that's not what he says. What he says is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is an initial and universal blessing for every true believer. Every true believer. Christian has the Holy Spirit. This is a staggering truth that I think that we need to meditate on for a moment. Think about it. Paul has just told us that Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our bodies. All of us who are Christian. He has made our bodies his home. This is what the word dwell means. This is how it's expressed by Jesus himself in John 14. We, referring to the Godhead, will come to him, referring to the believer, and make our home with him. Therefore, we have become, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, a temple of the Holy Spirit. The place on earth where God has taken up residence. I'm not sure that we can ever plumb the depths of the magnitude of this truth. It isn't simply that we are in Christ, but that Christ is in us. 
Think about it. Those of us who were by nature enemies of God have become the dwelling place of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those of us who were by nature weak and corrupt have the God who is all-powerful and perfect in holiness living in us. It's remarkable and its implications are significant. When Satan attacks tries to lead you to despair, remember who resides in you and that the power that is yours in Christ. When we're tempted to sin, remember that your body is a temple of the living God. It's harder to allow your body to be misused and abused when you remember this truth. We could go on and on with these implications And I want to encourage you to continue to meditate on this. Now, I do want to note here that even as the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, this doesn't mean that every believer is going to have the same experience of the Spirit. Some might have a fuller, deeper, richer experience of the Spirit, especially as they seek a more intimate relationship with God. Some might be more open to the Spirit's leading. Some might be anointed by the Spirit for a special task. So you see Paul in Ephesians 1 praying for the church in Ephesus to have a deeper experience of the Spirit in order that the church might know Christ and their identity in Christ more fully. But he has also just stated... In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. Therefore, to state it again, the personal indwelling of the Spirit is every believer's privilege from the beginning. Otherwise, and Paul is very clear here, the person is not a Christian. And this is in accordance with Jesus' promise in John 14, which tells us that the Spirit will be sent and that he will dwell with God's people and in God's people, but those of the world or of the flesh, as Paul has been saying, cannot receive him. We should be careful here, though, how we apply this truth to others and to ourselves. You see, I've far too often heard people make comments about how someone was so Christ-like in the way that they lived, so they must be a Christian. Old Bob did so many good things in his life. He really cared for people. He was so gentle and generous and kind, and he committed his life to serving others. You could really see the love of Christ in him. And so it goes that old Bob could have only lived that way if he were filled with the Holy Spirit. So he must be He must have been a Christian, and he must now be in heaven. Disregard the fact that old Bob professed to be an agnostic. What does it really matter if he denied the Christian faith and refused to worship Jesus? Do you see the problem here? This would be to say that somehow a person can be indwelt in a saving way by the Holy Spirit who is shaping the person to be Christ-like, yet not providing the person with faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and spurring the person to worship Him as God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones states, may God deliver us from the snare of regarding good, noble, nice, tender-hearted men as men who necessarily have the Spirit of Christ. 
To have the Spirit of Christ means that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, that you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit, that you are born again, a new man, a new creation. And here's the thing. Here's what he says. The ultimate test is your relationship to, your view of, your attitude toward the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's been trying to get us to understand in these previous verses as he discussed the mind which is set on the things of the Spirit in contrast to the mind that's set on the things of the flesh. What Paul is putting forward in these first eight verses concerns what drives us, what motivates us. Is it love for self-serving pleasures of this world or is it love of God in Jesus Christ? Is it the desires of a fallen nature or of the spirit? Are we living according to the old regime in which we were dominated by sin? Or are we living according to the new regime in which we are being led by the Holy Spirit? As John Stott states, Now to set the mind on the desires of the flesh or spirit is to make them the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. It's a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us, of how we spend our time and our energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves up to. All this is determined by who we are, whether we are still in the flesh or are now by new birth in the spirit. So said more simply, what is the basic orientation of the will? So is our orientation directed toward God in a way that we are alive to God and delighting in the things of God? Or is it directed toward our fallen, corrupted nature, being antagonistic to God, refusing to submit to his will and his law? Now, all of this is to say that one's outward goodness does not necessarily reveal whether he or she is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there is another side to that coin. And that is that we should also not necessarily doubt our own salvation due to our ongoing struggle with sin. Paul's point in these preceding verses was not to say that having the Spirit completely eliminates sin in your life. Remember the whole thrust of this section of Romans chapters 5 through 8 is to give us what? An assurance of our salvation. Paul wants to deal with these issues, namely sin and the law, that might shake our confidence that our justification, freely given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will lead to our final salvation. And John and I both said, but I will say it again, just because you are no longer under the law, just because you are no longer a slave to sin, just because you are now a new creation in Christ, just because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, does not mean that you will completely eliminate sin in your life. But here is the gist of what Paul has been saying. Sin is no longer, it no longer has power over you. Your orientation will be changed as you are moved from the realm of sin and death to the realm of the Spirit. You should be growing to hate your sin and growing to love Christ. And I'm going to say more on that next week. But on this side of eternity, you will never be completely without sin. 
Now look at this. Look at the very next thing that Paul says here in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, By the way, the if here is not to draw doubt that Christ is in you. Rather, it is used by Paul to mean something of the effect of if, as indeed the case is. Remember, Paul has begun by saying, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And you have to see the movement of all these verses together. Anyone who does not have the spirit does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you. So the same thing is going to apply in the next verse as well, where Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. But back to verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And there it is. Paul is telling us that on the one hand, our bodies are dead because of sin. As Martin Lloyd-Jones states, it means the seed of death is in our bodies. The body, as it were, is the seat of death. There is a principle of decay and of death in the bodies of us all, and the process of decay is increasing and growing. And then he goes on to make this shocking statement. Ever since the fall, the moment we entered into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. Such is the position of man as a result of the fall. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. As a result of the fall, the body of man is in a state of humiliation and weakness and death. The moment we are born, we are beginning to die. And we know this not to just be true in the physical sense, but also in the moral sense. The body is the instrument that sin uses The body is not just the seat of death, as Lloyd-Jones has stated. It's also the seat of sin. It gives sin its chance and its opportunity. It works its way out through its members. Therefore, the body becomes a battleground in the struggle against sin as sin tries to work out its purposes through the body's members. But the glorious news of the gospel is that the death of the body because of sin is not is not the whole story of the one who is in Christ. Praise the Lord. It isn't just that the body has the seed of death in it due to sin. Paul tells us here that it also has what? The seed of life in it. Due to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Even as our bodies are decaying and will eventually die, the Holy Spirit is imparting us with new life in our spirit, which means we shall never die. Think of what this means for us. It means that even as we still wrestle with sin, sin cannot get us back to the realm of death again. We are not in a hopeless situation. We can have full confidence and assurance because we know that the Spirit of God is in us. God has made us His own. Our spirits have been made alive. We have received the indwelling Holy Spirit, the gift of eternal life. And look at the tense Paul uses here. The Spirit is life. It's a present tense. We Experience it now. Even though the, the body is dying, we have a living spirit. Even if we're experiencing it incompletely. But even as the battle continues with sin, 
We know that the fight will come to an end in victory. But Paul is about to tell us something even more glorious. But first, I want to take you on a slight detour here before finishing up. This is very, very important, so stick with me here. I do not want us to confuse what Paul's been saying about the flesh in these preceding verses of chapter 8 with what he is now saying about the body. These words, flesh and body, are not interchangeable. We might use them as synonyms in the English language, but they are not intended as synonyms here. Each word carries its own meaning. So while he's now talking about the physical body in verse 10, his discussion of the flesh has been referring to our condition outside of Christ. It's our natural state in Adam by which we are all afflicted after the fall of humankind. It's the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed, our fallen egocentric human nature, or more briefly, the sin-dominated self. Again, Paul is contrasting the orientation of the will of one who is controlled by the spirit and the one who is controlled by the corrupted human nature. There are reasons why I bring this up now and tell you that the distinction between flesh and body is very important. One reason is that Paul has made a shift in verse 9. He goes, if you notice, from speaking in the third person to speaking in the second person. This change is highlighting that Paul is applying directly to his readers or hearers the general truths he's been expounding in verses 1 through 8. But that's not all. The shift also includes a change in emphasis in which he moves from talking about the moral implications of life in the Spirit to the future implications of life in the Spirit. And with this change in emphasis, Paul is now addressing the fate of the body, which we are going to get to in just one moment. But first, if we confuse what Paul means by the flesh, what do we do? We end up with a very Platonistic understanding of the fate of our body. We can very easily read the first nine verses and believe that our bodies are bad, that they are a prison that we need to shed. After all, we don't want to be in the flesh. So if we misunderstand this, we might get the impression that the only thing that is of any importance is the spiritual realm. If this is what we understand Paul to be saying, we have it very wrong. This is not the Christian view, it is Platonism. And this sort of understanding not only results in a very diminished view of God's eternal purpose for the physical world, it also creates on this side of eternity a very unbiblical view, a very unbiblical view that the physical world is of no consequence. Friends, we do not need to be uninformed that we are immersed in a culture that has dismissed the importance of the physical Look around you. The world has begun to deny objective physical reality and elevated, rather, how one feels. It's absolutely ridiculous, and we need to guard our own minds against this sort of worldliness. I think one of the reasons that sexual immorality has invaded the church with such force in recent years is due to a diminished view of what we do with our bodies. God made our bodies good. They are fallen, but that does not mean that God wants to simply do away with the physical. So hear now what Paul says in verse 11. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch it? The same spirit who raised Jesus' body from the dead will also give life to your body. Paul has told us what's going to happen to our spirit. They have been given life. But God deals with us completely because the fall has affected us completely. The whole of our humanity has been touched by the fall. So it isn't that eternity will be spent as disembodied spirits, as Plato asserted. No, our bodies, which are corrupt and decaying, dying because of sin, will also be redeemed. Even as our inner man is being renewed, our outward man is wasting away, but that is not the whole story. The whole story is that just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead, the day will come when we too shall be raised from the dead and our bodies will be glorified. Or if we are still alive on earth when Christ comes, we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Paul is now saying what he has been hinting at from chapter 6. Everything that happened to Christ will happen to us. We have been crucified with Christ. We died with him and we will rise with him. Just as he was literally physically raised from the dead in the body, so too shall we be raised. Paul is going to say the very same thing in much greater detail in 1 Corinthians 15. But he's also saying it here in Romans 8 very clearly. But here's what Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is our assurance of the redemption of our bodies. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What we need to see here is the truth that God is not going to stop short with us. He's not going to leave his work incomplete. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this truth. He states, It is because the Holy Spirit dwells in me as a Christian that I can be absolutely certain of the resurrection and the ultimate glorification of this mortal body of mine. This is what I want to know. I am saved. But I am still aware of sin. And the devil can come and use this mortal body of mine and its members to trap me. I want to rid, get rid of his snare. This is what every Christian longs for. The gospel message tells me that I can be happy about this. I can be certain about it. I have a guarantee that my body will be delivered. Oh, how glorious this truth, that the day will come when we who are in Christ will no longer groan under the weight of a fallen and sinful world, when we will be entirely free from sin and our bodies will be free from corruption, decay, disease, and death. Oh, how glorious this truth, that the day will come when we move from weakness to glory, when the perishable will put on the imperishable, when the mortal body will put on immortality. Dearly beloved, take comfort in this truth. This is your assurance. 
that even as you continue to wrestle with sin in your mortal bodies, you who have the Spirit dwelling within you will have ultimate victory, body and soul in Jesus Christ. You who have died with Christ will be raised with Christ in glory. Thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, you did not just come in your son Jesus to rid us of sin. But you came to redeem us, body and soul. That we might spend eternity in the joy of your presence. Father, help us to meditate on that. Help us to meditate on who you are for us in the power of your spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And Lord, let us stand firm in this assurance that we have that you will lead us to final salvation. For we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the word of God, let us now stand and affirm what we believe Stating together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived.